Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 116 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing a classic attraction over at Disney's Hollywood Studios, which is the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. We actually covered this topic before. We, in episode 45, talked about the history, details, and fun facts of this classic attraction, and you could go back and listen on any of your favorite podcast apps. I also had a discussion with McNair Wilson, who was one of the lead conceptual Imagineers who brought the Tower of Terror to life. In this episode, it is such a popular attraction, so I wanted to give you even more content, which is why I sat down with veteran Imagineer Theron Skies. He's been on the show before, and Theron helped to develop many of the second and third and fourth iterations of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, and he knows quite a bit as an Imagineer about the history of this particular attraction. So if you love Tower of Terror, you're going to get even more insights as Theron and I talk about some of your favorite facts and things you might not have known before about this ride. Before we get started, I do want to give a special thanks to our partner, which is WDW Magazine. I am both a subscriber and an author, a contributor to WDW Magazine. In fact, in July of 2021, I had a whole article about Tower of Terror that you can go back and read. And I encourage you to, of course, learn more and subscribe to WDW Magazine's print or digital editions by heading to imagineerpodcast.com. You'll find the links there. You'll also find the link in the show notes of this podcast episode. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer Podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer Podcast. So welcome everyone to our next Imagineer live event. We have Imagineer Theron Skies joining us today, who I'm going to welcome into our Instagram live. Theron is a an Imagineer who worked on the attraction that we're going to be talking about today, which is going to be very exciting, I'm sure for all of you. And that is all about Tower of Terror. I'm going to let Theron talk a little bit more about what he did on Tower of Terror and his experiences there, and we're going to have what I know is a fantastic conversation about this attraction. So, hey, Theron, welcome back to the show. Hi, everybody. It's so great to be back with you. Yeah, it's a it's it's fantastic. I, I know that we spoke last month about a wide range of topics and thinking about you know how we could take that to the next level um you know an idea that you had presented which i thought was perfect was to narrow our conversation to a particular attraction and in brainstorming ideas when you mentioned tower of terror i said well that i know is the one that everyone's going to be the most excited to talk about (laughs) and everyone has tons of questions about so i am uh looking forward to the stories that will that even I'm going to get to hear today for the first time, because uh, every time I, I talk to you, I hear a new story I had never <laughs> known before, um, Awesome, which should be really exciting. For those who might not know 
well, they probably know you because you've now been on the show twice. But for those who might not know what your experience was with Tower of Terror, why don't you start by telling us what your role was for Tower of Terror? Absolutely. So I think many of you know, or if you've been to my YouTube channel, you've seen I did a webinar that kind of talked about my career journey. So many of you may know that uh, I got started in my uh, full-time role as the art director of the Disney MGM Studios when it was Disney MGM Studios at the time, 1997. And Tower, of course, was already built. It was already open. But uh, my role as the art director of that park was to oversee all the stories in that park. So anything that took place, any rehab, any anything new that took place, even small things like signs or popcorn carts or whatever, you know, it was myself and my team that took care of that. And one of the great opportunities that came up was looking at Tower of Terror to what we call reprofile. And the brilliant thing about the attraction is that the storyline, coupled with the ride technology, gave us the immense flexibility to continue iterating on the story. And there's not a lot of attractions that allow us that flexibility. So that's kind of how my initial relationship with Tower of Terror started um, in that way at the Disney MGM Studios. And it grew over time, which we can talk about later, but that's, that's how I got started. And it is really exciting. You had shared, which I'm going to plug in our first podcast episode, about your time sort of retooling Tower of Terror, which will probably come up in the conversation today. And for those who haven't listened to the podcast episode yet, it involved writing Tower of Terror, what was it, 45 <laughs> times in a row? I can't remember the exact number of 42. times you had to write it. 42. <laughs> that's right, yeah. it was 42. I, that's, that, that number now sticks in my head. <laughs> I, I, I could barely write it once, let alone 42 times. But that's, uh, I know for, for many people, a, a dream to be able to just stay on and ride again and again. Some people wanted to stay on the, the TTA people mover and, and ride it around as many times as possible. But 42 times in a row on Tower of Terror is, I think, probably a record somewhere. It's, it's got to you you be in the... That tells you all you need to know about us, right? I mean, it's just pure crazy, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, I wanted to kick things off by going into our question sticker. And I know that we had, um, you know, there's some other questions I definitely wanted to ask you as well. But there was one that came in that I want to find that was really interesting. Um, Great. That had to do with story, because I think it's always important to start with story. And this asks about the process for creating the story for the different versions of Tower of Terror, because I've shared on the show sort of the uh, original concepts and the the long process that was involved in coming up with what ended up being the Twilight Zone theme. And there was talks of it being a number of other different things before that. But can you talk a bit about how the story is adapted to all the different versions around the world and the thought process behind that? Absolutely. Um, I think it's no secret that everybody knows that the Twilight Zone really was the uh, story tie-in for the original attraction in Orlando, and that's kind of what gave it the the basis for being, right? That was, uh, of all the different concepts, there's a Vincent Price concept, there was a you know, several different like creature feature kind of um, um, attraction ideas. And then when it landed on Rod Serling and the paranormal 
uh, this idea that anything could happen, right? In the in the fifth dimension, anything was possible. So that was the the story tie-in that was the hook, and and the whole project just spilled out of that. And we can get into details later, but when the um, attraction went to France, which I had the great honor of being able to lead that uh, whole effort there in, in France with Hollywood Boulevard and, and all of the shops and, and Tower, it was awesome. Um, we were really fortunate in a sense because um, Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone played throughout Europe. So it was a known um, intellectual property, the, the idea of this paranormal place, that was all known. However, when that concept of tower went to Japan, it was not known. So an entirely new story had to be invented that was basically leveraging on this idea of, of an elevator that drops within a hotel. But as we can talk about later, the whole story uh, kind of changed. So that was that's really I think it's really special when you have an attraction, a, a core attraction that can be that flexible and you can change and have it adapt to uh, not just story modes, uh, but also culture. And it can it can work in a whole nother culture. Yeah, I know that that was the unique one that uh, Tokyo version is the only one that didn't have originally that that Twilight Zone theme for for that reason. And it makes a lot of sense. Um you know, and there's there's also what I find to be interesting, and I don't know if you could talk to it a little bit, is the fact that the Orlando version has a unique design. Tokyo does too. They both have this different look to them. It's interesting that the California version and the Powers version, they at least before the California version was changed to Guardians of the yeah. Galaxy Mission Breakout, those two were almost... I would think clones, you know, they were, they were pretty much the same, the look and feel. Um, Do you have, do you know why they changed from the original sort of look and feel of the, the MGM studios or now Hollywood studios version to the version that exists at uh, Disneyland Paris and existed at uh, California adventure? Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think for real fans of tower of terror, most people that I've met anyways, Orlando is their favorite, uh, followed by Tokyo, <laughs> just because Tokyo was over the top. They spent so much money. It's so beautiful. But Orlando was unique in a sense that it has, um, if I could show you a cross section, I would, it has a lift shaft. So when you load in the boiler room, the um, elevator goes up through the corridor scene, which everybody's familiar with, the Pepper's Ghost, where the corridor disappears. And then it goes up to another stop where the doors open and the elevator cab itself actually leaves the elevator shaft and travels through a scene we call the fifth dimension. Now, this is unique to Orlando, and it, it, it was really, it is, the um, original idea. And uh, the whole idea was to just completely freak people out that an elevator that everybody is prepared for to move in a vertical plane all of a sudden now moves in a horizontal plane. Once the that cab moves across the fifth dimension, it loads into what we call the drop shaft. Many of you probably know this. And then you get your drop experience. In the California version, version which was the very first um, tower to be created that way, that uh, available footprint of property for the attraction to actually physically be built on was quite a bit less than what we had in Orlando. So the idea of trying to combine all of those scenes into one shaft 
um, was a, an effort to be more efficient, cost efficient, but also um, square footage. How, do, how can we condense that more? So that was kind of the, the effort there. And then, yes, what we did was, uh, I won't say duplicate, but it was, it was a very uh, strong lift from California uh, moving into Paris. There were quite a few things that we, that we modified, um, some that were seen and some that were unseen. And I'm happy to talk about that, too. Yeah, well, let's let's definitely talk about that. What are because I know that there's there's some subtle differences. What are some of the differences between the Paris version and what was the California version at the time? I, I would say one of the largest differences is the way that it was constructed, and that doesn't really mean anything to the guests. But just for those who are curious, it's a massive difference when in California you're building a building out of steel, um, like an erector set. Uh, steel a structure that has uh, exterior wrap and an interior wrap. That's kind of a very similar American way to build things. Um, and But the dimensional thickness of the walls and therefore the windows, the doors, the placement of all those things is built on that basis, right? Plus in California, you have seismic codes that will control the, the, the building, the footing, the way that it's built. So taking those drawings and moving them to Paris, a lot of things had to be changed because in Paris, that entire building is made from poured concrete. And there's a really cool video out there that you should look at. Um, I don't know exactly what it's under. Have you seen that before, Matt? I've I've seen it. It's a time-lapse video of, That's of right. Tower Fair being constructed. It's probably under Disney Parks blog, but I'll have to go back and research to see if that's true. If you're listening to the podcast, I'll make sure to put it in the podcast Sweet. notes. Sweet. I know your audience would love it. It's super cool. It's a time-lapse, and literally it just shows these forms sitting on the ground and they just grow and out of it is kind of spitting out a building. So the only reason I bring that up is that it's all concrete. So all of those dimensions are completely different and the way that you build it is 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 different. And that, that caused us to shift a few things. The most visible difference uh, that we did was uh, in a couple of ways. The I was extremely fortunate in France to work with an interiors company that actually did castle rehabs. Um, so the the curtains, the drapery, all the upholstery, all the fabrics, the the um, tapestries. I mean, all of these you know uh, fine fine things were made by the most skilled hands you could possibly get. And and it was such a privilege. To work that way, I mean, to go to a blacksmith shop and see them custom fabricating metal ornamentation for the inside was a real treat. So in a art direction standpoint, the interior is very rich and uh, and we changed quite a few things. For example, the couches in the lobby in Paris are covered with a blue floral silk, which is totally different than the color scheme in California. We also, in Paris, added a lot more hand-painted uh, oil paintings, and we scoured Paris for these really intimidating, <laughs> uh, very off, you know, kind of paintings that would make guests feel just like, whoa, she's looking at me, you know. Um, so we had a lot of fun doing those kinds of uh, changes um, and things. And the other big difference, of course, between Orlando and Paris specifically is it's a two-story boiler room. So we had a lot of fun uh, doing doing that and kind of representing that in a different way. Yeah, I, you know, having done, I have not done the Paris version. And to be fair, I haven't done any of the versions because of motion sickness. But 
walking through what I always do is I walk through the experiences at least. And I always loved walking through the California version. And I know the Paris version because of those two stories. My understanding of that is it allows for a more efficient process um, with with loading and unloading compared to the Orlando version. Is that is that a correct statement or am I a little off with that? <laughs> no, you're a hundred percent right. When the when the ride system and the way that the the ride loads was rethought based on a tighter footprint, it was decided that there would be two levels of loading and the um, actual um, elevator shafts, if you will, went from two in Orlando to three. So you have three uh, uh, load areas on two different platforms. So you load in one area and unload on another platform. And, uh, and that um, goes, so you load on the, on the boiler room side and then you unload on the backside. It was really super efficient. And from a ride design perspective, when you study that, it's like, wow, this is really mathematically precise to get the most possible people through the attraction. Um, and then each th- each of those three shafts can all move independently of each other, and it, it constitutes an entire experience in one shaft as opposed to two. So much more efficient movement of people. Yeah, I think one of the things, it, 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 I think it might have been something you and I had spoken about either in the podcast episode or perhaps when we had stopped recording was also the idea of downtime that with the Orlando version, if one of the towers needs to go down for maintenance, you have only two drop towers. So that literally cuts it in half, um, cuts the number of guests who can get into the attraction That's right. in half. But with the um, the California and the Paris versions, you know, if, if one of the drop towers has to go under refurbishment, they can do one at a time out of the three. And so you're still at 66% approximately capacity um, as opposed to 50%, which I know makes a huge difference in terms of the number of guests you can feed through in a day. Um, so it's, uh, it is a smart mathematical um, decision that, that truly, I think, makes a, a pretty big difference. Yeah, it's a, it's a really big part of ride design, attraction design. And I, I think being in creative and, and teaching at different universities in this sort of creative lane, if you will, um, there's a tendency to only focus on story, design, you know, creative direction and the, 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 the physical attributes that you see. But there's such a collaboration that's required from a ride design, design standpoint, a load sequencing, timing, pulsing, how many guests can go through at a time. And, and much of the experience that we design is based on those numbers, those factors. Um, it's super, super important. Even the, the queue line, in a sense, you know, how far out do you carry the the thematic overlay and storytelling in the queue line? Because if you're standing in that queue for 45 minutes or I, I, on some days that would probably be really good, you yeah. know, an hour, 20 minutes, hour and a half. You you want to feel like you're immersed in, in the show. So all of those things are really important engineering calculations that feed into creative. Um, you don't just make the creative and then tell engineering to figure it out, right? Yeah, oh, it's, it's so true. And you're right. There's a lot even that's in the queue that is... There's so much attention to detail, which is, I think is one of the things that fans love about Tower of Terror. And one of the things I appreciate about Tower of Terror is that level of detail. 
And I know that there are, even for Twilight Zone fans, there are some fun Easter eggs that are in all of the versions. Uh, maybe not Tokyo's. Uh, I don't know about Tokyo's 100%. But even, I mean, even with Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, there are still some tributes to the original Tower of Terror. Um, yeah. are, or do you know of any of like those those cool Easter eggs that, that are on Tower of Terror that people might not be aware of that relate to the Twilight Zone or relate to anything else? Absolutely. Now you're really testing my memory, so I won't remember. <laughs> I, at one point in time, I, I did many, many presentations on the Tower, and I had all of those things down. But the um, the library, especially, which is the uh, area that you you sort of get your pre-show in before you go into the boiler room, that's a, a space that really captures a bunch of Easter eggs. And the idea was to represent through physical props as many. Um, of the uh, episodes of the of the original Twilight Zone as possible, so there's um, uh, I know there's a one that I remember is called To Serve Man, and yeah. it was an, an episode and and it it was a book, and uh, what you find out in the episode is it's actually a recipe book for cooking humans, right? So we had To Serve Man on the shelf. There was another one with a really cool little uh, ro- uh, like a spaceman robot. So that was up there. There was. One with a trumpet. There was one with broken glasses. Uh, Burgess Meredith was was there. He was the last man on planet Earth, and he was so happy that it was quiet, and all he could do is sit down and read his books, and his glasses were broken. And yeah, so <laughs> it was that type of thing. Is you know th- that's what Imagineers love to do is to not only tell an overarching story, but to continue layering the stories so that every guest has this chance to see something new when you visit again. And, that, and that's something we, we love to do. So it's like, for example, whenever I'm in Paris, you know, I have a special room in Tower of Terror. It's actually 1313 uh, <laughs> is, is my room. So <laughs> you get my, the lucky that's my room. hidden secret. <laughs> You get the lucky room. We all know where to find you <laughs> exactly. in, in, the, in the tower. Um, it is funny because one of the original concepts way back in the early days was to was to actually make Tower a hotel, so that as the Disney MGM Studios was growing, there was going to be hotel needs. So they had the great idea, which is a good idea, to combine a hotel with an attraction. Then it's a real hotel, and you can do all these you know paranormal kind of scary type things in the hotel but then somebody wisely said wait a second there's going to be screaming excited thrill-seeking guests in here while there's other (laughs) guests that are going to be trying to sleep so probably a bad combination especially on grad nights when they have the park open late (laughs) through the evening it's not going to be great for the guest experience though staying at the hotel so yeah totally it was a good it was a good decision um you know speaking of you kind of cued me up speaking about the experience changing from one ride to the next and uh, or one one time doing tower of terror to the next um you know one of the experiences i haven't spoken about much on the podcast and it was i've started to incorporate it more now into my podcast attraction deep dive episodes but back when i did the tower of terror episode i wasn't really talking too much about it um but it is a part of imagineering is the cast members because you and i had spoken about that with a number of different attractions and areas at disney before and Tower of Terror, it's funny, when people ask me what cast member role I would want, despite not being able to ride Tower of Terror, and generally being a pretty happy-go-lucky, optimistic guy, 
I would love to put myself into the role of a bellhop just for a day, just to <laughs> really mess with guests um, and to sort of portray that role. But it is really interesting. It's sort of like that haunted mansion um, type of role where most cast members in most positions are going to be, with some exceptions, playing this. Well, not you know, even as they're playing a role, they're still going to be upbeat, energetic, smiling. It almost defeats the show with Haunted Mansion and with Tower of Terror. Um, can you speak a little bit about the Imagineering of the cast member roles at Tower of Terror? Absolutely. Um, and I've seen, of all the attractions that I've visited all over the world with Disney, I, I have witnessed that the cast member role at Tower oftentimes gets performed what I would call incorrectly because when I was in my role as art director we spent a lot of time in cast training and we, we of course tried to make it really fun because you know every every Imagineer uh, every ride designer every attraction you know experience creator knows that creating that uh, the physical experience is only part of it that that experience that story has to be communicated to the frontline cast because they're the, 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 the live people that deliver that story experience for the guests. So that, that's a really critical link. And every attraction I ever worked on, we spent a lot of time with the cast. So here's the way that it's supposed to happen at Tower of Terror. Remember that there was something that, that happened that's paranormal. So it's never said that anybody died there. Um, there are no ghosts there. All that you actually see happen is that you have a lightning storm, this this very strange lightning storm, that everybody in the hotel disappears. That's why in the lobby, that's why in the corridor scene, that's why everywhere you see the, um, remnants of uh, activities that were in process when the people that were employed in those uh, uh processes were immediately vanished. That's that's why we worked so hard to tell those stories. People right out of their shoes, right, were, were just disappeared. So the bellhops were the only ones that were left. And in a sense, they were affected because they don't realize that anything's wrong. So they still think it's 1939, and they still believe that they're in the top hotel in all of Hollywood and everybody that comes there is somebody really special and really important. So they're like really over the top with courteous, you know, welcoming from, you know, language from the 1930s, uh, late 30s. And, and that's the way that it's supposed to be. And that performance is supposed to be such a juxtapose to this spider webbed, dusty, cobweb infested place and even their very uniforms kind of seem dusty. And it's like they're just bopping around like nothing is wrong. And that almost like they see guests everywhere. And they see guests every day because they're just welcoming you in. That's the way they're supposed to perform it. I've seen zombies. I've seen The Walking Dead. I've seen, <laughs> you know, cast members breaking the fourth wall and kind of winking at guests, telling jokes, you know, like the Jungle Cruise. Although that might be fun for them, and it might be fun for the guests, it's uh, not the right level of performance uh, for the show. Yeah. Yeah, I think that happens actually in a lot of attractions. It's um, <clears throat> cast members really getting into the role and, and having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. But it's always interesting to hear sort of the original idea for what that experience would be like. And I love the juxtaposition you talk about with the 
what was once this great um, Hollywood hotel where anyone who um, you know wanted to be seen or or was was someone to be seen would be there. And when you turn the and even just the placements of Tower of Terror on Sunset Boulevard, when you turn the corner onto Sunset, you see what is still in mostly great shape. All these you know gorgeous buildings at the the height of the uh, um, golden age of Hollywood, and then at the end you see what should be uh, the almost like the greatest centerpiece of it all, and it's really disheveled and 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 beat up and old looking, and um, one of the really details that I love, and this goes probably a little bit into art direction and it might be, you know, and, and, and I'd love to talk a little bit about this concept, whether it relates to Tower of Terror or elsewhere, is that when you turn the corner to sunset, one of the details most people won't notice is on the right-hand side, just behind what's now the uh, the Starbucks location there, there's a, a car in this courtyard where there's these seats and then above that car, is a billboard that almost looks like it was forgotten. It was it was there for to advertise the Hollywood Tower Hotel, but you could see it looks like it's aged. It looks like it hasn't been touched in decades. Um, but it almost gives you the sense again as you're looking at the tower and you're looking at this billboard of the time that has passed and what has happened between what you see on the billboard and what you see in front of you. Um, can you give any other examples, or can you talk about the way that the Imagineers sort of um, place those little details into the story before you even reach an attraction. Absolutely, uh, that's my favorite part. Well, if you <laughs> if you if you walk down Sunset Boulevard, and um, you know you pay attention to the details, like for example, there's a a Victory Garden in the uh, Sunset Ranch area. There's a, a little like scarecrow, and it says Victory Garden. Anybody that understands American history knows that that took place after World War II, and Americans would plant Victory Gardens. In fact, Europeans would do that too to celebrate, you know, uh, VE Day, Victory in Europe. And so that <clears throat> that places the time frame. I'm going to probably get it wrong. 42 to 45, somewhere in that range. If you are inside of Tower of Terror, you'll realize that the event took place Halloween night, uh, which was Friday the 13th in 1939. And so that building has literally, that's like the haunted house at the end of the street, right? Nobody messes with it. Nobody goes in there. All the other buildings are kept up. They're freshly painted. It is, you are walking down the street in the, you know, the early 40s. And and that's why it's sort of this theater district. You've got big band music playing. You're, you're meant to be immersed in that particular time period. And the spooky house at the end of the street is the one that's abandoned, and that's why it looks that way. So the billboard is the first um, reinforcement of foreboding, because you can tell, even from a distance, if you really have a, a careful eye, you can tell something's not right with the architecture. And the closer that you get to it, it's meant to reveal layers of of not being right. <laughs> and and, and th- that's the whole idea about that attraction, is... Like the like a good scary movie, um, it it reveals itself in um, ever ratcheting up with foreboding. In fact, a lot of people in the boiler room. That's why they had to put the chicken shoot in there. Um, was that people get to the boiler room and it's just it's too much. I've had too much in my senses. It's too freaky. I'm not going to do it. And um, 
according to the cast members, a lot of cast members really have to convince guests to get into the elevator, which actually is a real elevator that takes <laughs> you, you know, downstairs and doesn't actually drop because they're they're have have so much anticipation built up, they're afraid that they're trying they're tricking them, right? And that's why we made the elevator totally stainless <laughs> steel and and non-themed. The doors open and it looks like you're in a hospital, you know. <laughs> I I have used that elevator many times um, uh, because <laughs> I I mean I know the experience. So walking in, I already know I'm walking out before boarding the attraction. But I also love walking through the queue as I talked about, and it is really uh you know, talk about misplaced theming when you, but and that's, I think done, you know, to your point intentionally. So people know, okay, this is not the ride. This is clearly a backstage. Yeah. Um, but like the doors open and you get everyone in the queue is staring at you as the doors close. You're in the bellhop and you, and you go down to the next level. Um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty entertaining to, to have that, that bright light, that bright, you know, it's like a hospital yeah. elevator, like that bright light shine through the rest of the boiler room. People are like, where is that person going? Is that a, is that a VIP? Is that uh, no, it's someone who's not going to ride. Um, you know, it, it's one of the things we, we were talking about a little bit before we started recording was the fact that this was really the first sort of major thrill ride for, um, at the time MGM studios. And it was also, you know, it, it free fall existed, but this isn't even a free fall attraction. It's a, it's a drop attraction. It falls, um, faster than the force of gravity. But one of the, one of the rumors I heard, and I, I have been unable to confirm this and I would love if you can confirm this for me, if you know, is, uh, that they installed scream tracks into the drop shafts, um, just so that, uh, if people didn't catch a, the sight of the elevator dropping, that they would hear it and hear the screams and realize it's a thrill ride so that that experience doesn't happen where they board the elevator thinking it's a normal dark ride. And then all of a sudden, like, no, this is not a normal dark, dark ride. This is a thrill attraction. Um, is that true? Did they do a scream track for that uh, for that ride? Absolutely. Yes. That's so cool. For the, for the opening <laughs> configuration of Tower... There, there was concern because you know when you when you walk up on a roller coaster, for example, that's that's not in a a, a show building, you kind of you know you have a wissy wig moment, right? What you see is what you get, and you can as a guest determine, oh heck yeah, I'm riding that, or no way I'm getting on that, you know. So you have this um, self edit that takes place because you you've kind of seen it all laid out. Um, other attractions, I'm thinking of like Crush's Coaster in, uh, in, in Walt Disney uh, Studio Paris, is a similar kind of thing where there's a moment where the ride vehicle comes out of the building and then goes back in. And, and that too was purposely done to show um, families with little children who, I want to ride Crush, that there's a, a level of thrill that, that might be beyond what their child could could or you know would would want to participate in tower was the same way with taking this this sort of accelerated drop attraction that the whole purpose of the attraction was to uh, install a thrill element an e-ticket um, at the studio specifically for young adults and teens because that was a, a demographic in the uh, early opening days of the park that wasn't really being served we could call it kind of underserved as a demo um, it was very purposely designed for that 
But in the process, it was kind of decided, look, we could end up with a lot of disappointed guests who are so excited with the buildup, but they get there and they either ride it and get sick or, or you know, are really uncomfortable with it because some people just don't like that. They love roller coasters, but they hate the, the sensation of dropping. I know a lot of senior execs that feel the same way <laughs> at, at Imagineering. They're like, I'm not getting on that ride, but I'll ride a roller coaster. Um, and it's so the decision was we should have the, the doors open so that guests on the street could could get a sense for what that experience was going to be. And some of them, the majority of them that were like, eh, I'm not going to do that. They could edit you know themselves out. They can decide to opt out. But there was also a concern because people experience thrill, you know, fear in different ways. Some people might, you know, freeze up and not make a sound. <gasps> You know, like this. <laughs> so there was a thinking, well, wow, what if we actually don't get the intended result and we don't have people, you know, you know, whooping it up in excitement or, or screaming out, you know, in excitement. So in the early days, a scream track was added. What we didn't then realize was that over the you know years before we iterated on the attraction again, that plenty of people got in and made lots of noise uh, of excitement and uh, the scream track really wasn't needed. That's so interesting. Um, and it was very smart to do that uh, to, to, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, there's visual weenies or, you know, what, what Walt coined a, the term weenie around the parks as being those visual, uh, icons that we're sort of attracted to. And that's sort of like an audio weenie. It's something that makes you turn your head if you're walking by, like, what, what, what is that? Um, and if you are approaching it, it makes you realize what, what's in store. It, it really adds to the sense of foreboding, right? Because you, you enter, through these, you know, old gates that that definitely begin to tell you of the age of the place. Through an overgrown garden that was once elegant but really unkempt, uh, to some really freaky-looking uh, statues and haunting kind of distant music. It's like almost ghostly. Yeah. Um, and then every five minutes, three minutes, you hear. Ah! <laughs> you know, people doing that. It, it does build on what we want is that feeling of foreboding that holy cow, I'm so excited. This is going to be amazing. Uh, yeah, it's it's such a, a masterpiece in building up that suspense. And you're right. It does build like a horror film um, as you're as you're moving into the experience, into that climactic moment of the drop. That's sort of that that real climactic, horrifying moment in a, in a movie it's, that you're working up to that. Of course, I was listening to the music loop in prep for this discussion because it really nice. gets me in the zone. Um, nice. And that's I do awesome. love like if you if you actually listen and this is I mean, uh, it's interesting how they how the how everyone did this, especially the, the music team or the, the sound team did this, uh, that the original songs that are featured in the Tower of Terror queue, because those are all real songs from the, the 30s, um, might, maybe even before then, the songs themselves are actually, in a lot of cases, pretty upbeat, but, and like, you know, swing tunes, but the way that it's done in Tower of Terror is they, it's almost like slowed down slightly. Yeah. Um, there's like a little bit of an echo or a reverb that's in there. It's, it's almost like they totally changed the song just by doing those couple of things. Like imagine if he did the same thing to it's a small world. Um, you just change, you know, you made the more of a slightly minor tone. You, you slowed down the music a little bit. You added an echo effect. People would be, freaked out writing yeah. it's a small world well, with that about, song 
Think about how successful that is in like American Horror Story or, you know, um, any horror movie that you can think about. You could have somewhere over the rainbow playing, but you you take that down a couple of octaves and slow it down. You're shaken because it's so it's such a record scratch to what you're seeing. And that's really what Tower is meant to be. It's not meant to be horror. It's not. that That's wrong. It's meant to be paranormal. Yeah. You, you have to remember that moving into this genre of storytelling for Disney is really difficult because everything within the Disney brand is telling optimistic stories, right? I mean, everything. Um, is tomorrow going to be a better day? Is there a happily ever after? You know, in Bambi, right? It's we're we're all heartbroken. We shed a tear when Bambi Bambi's mother is shot by the evil hunters, right? But at the end of the day, he becomes the prince of the forest, right? It is a, a brighter day. So moving in this genre had to be done in such a careful way to respect the brand, but still touch on those emotions, right? Fear, thrill, excitement, anticipation. And those emotions are okay to have, um, but you have to have a brighter day, right? So I think that's that was the difficulty, probably in, the biggest difficulty in that attraction story was, was finding that balance uh, in that way. That's so interesting. And it is such a subtle difference um, between those tool, uh, the, between those two. And um, I, I said tool because I was wanting to transition into talking about retooling um, the the attraction, which we we talked about a little bit. And it also made me think of something that Joe Rody had said, which when we talk about retooling, you know, leads all the way up to Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, which is really a retooling of Tower of Terror. And and Joe had talked about in the Imagineering story on Disney Plus, the idea of that very subtle line between fear and joy um, and how they were able to make very slight changes to the Tower of Terror experience to turn it from uh, like a fearful drop to a joyful almost bouncing um so like that to me was was brilliant but i know that tower of terror has gone through several iterations in its history so what sort of led to the decision to change it from what it was originally to now like where i think we're in version four of of the original tower of terror Yes. Well, I think one of the first sort of discoveries, if you will, it wasn't really a discovery in in the origination sense because the attraction was built very specifically with a flexible storyline and a flexible ride technology. But I think at the time when the decision was made by the company to explore, you know, really reimagining and and uh, and deepening, if you will, that experience, retooling, if you will, that experience at Tower. There was a whole group of of executives at the time that were new, especially in marketing, and didn't really understand that. So it was a part of a big kind of brainstorming that says, you know what? Uh, and by the way, everybody, this happens all the time. We don't <laughs> yeah. have the we don't have the money for you know a brand new attraction or a brand new land or a new parade or a you know, a new show, those are expensive. Those are millions of dollars. I mean, it's not just, you know, let's write a check. So <laughs> there's there's often a lot of discussion that says, how do we keep things fresh? How do we iterate on things? 
and do that in an affordable way and do them more frequently uh, so that guests really get this surprise and delight. That was kind of the discussion. And um, we brought to the attention of marketing and everybody that, look, Tower's got, you know, we've got this paranormal uh, storyline where anything could happen in Twilight Zone. So we could, we can continue to iterate on that story in that paranormal thrill genre for forever. And then the ride attraction mechanism itself uh, gave us the ability to reprogram movement almost infinitely with accelerations and drop speeds and, you know, stopping points, starting points, all that stuff. And then if you think about layering into the attraction itself, the shaft and everything else, a lot of other sensory um, elements, it really becomes a very different, you know, attraction, a real plussed up attraction. So that was kind of the journey that we took. Um, I was available for for two of those changes. We just labeled them Tower 3 and Tower 4. <laughs> uh, Tower 3 taught us a lot about what how far we could push it. And then Tower 4, we really took it far. We actually gave the computer <laughs> the ability to choose between a, a, a bunch of different presets of, uh, of attraction experiences, not just effects, but also movement. Um, and then that was employed with uh, Paris. You know, we got to kind of choose the best and, and go from there. And it's, it's awesome to hear Joe talk about uh, Mission Breakout because, in a sense, he was changing the storyline but kept all of the ride equipment, right? So right. it's just a testament, a testament to the original ride design team to create attraction ride system that affords that many different iterations on story. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. It's so smart. And it's really, a, you're right, a testament to the the impact of that ride system and its capabilities. Um, it, it really does have the ability to explore so many different storylines and iterations. And it's just a, <clears throat> a masterpiece in, in that sense, which is which is great. Um, so one of the things that, uh, you know, let me go into the question sticker because there were actually a, a ton of questions. I've been asking you a ton of questions, but there were even more <laughs> that people sent in that I'm, I've, I'm I've almost forgetting about. I've seen them just keep about. scrolling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was one about challenges and I want to find it. It was this one. Um, so what was the most challenging task of Tower of Terror? Oh, that's easy. Um, we couldn't close the attraction to do um, the repurposing work. So all of our work had to be done between, say, 11, 11.30 at night, and I think it was like 5 or 5.30 in the morning. Oh, wow. um, and then so we would literally come in after the park closed, <clears throat> after safety and maintenance did, you know, there was a whole operations thing that had to be done. Uh, I'm not giving it enough respect by calling it a thing, but they had a whole process <laughs> for for being safe about how the ride was shut down. And then we would come in and take over, and we'd quite literally work on it all night long and then have to turn it back over to operations who would then restart with all their safety protocols and everything like that. In between all that work, maintenance had standard you know, maintenance work that had to be done on a mechanism. I mean, this is a... If you ever saw this thing move, it would frighten you, just the mass of metal that moves at an insane rate of speed 
uh, is unbelievable. So there's a lot of maintenance, a lot of testing that has to be done. So that's saying that was the hardest part. You're in a sense recreating a whole ride experience. And you can only do it in a very short window of, of time and then you have to turn it over for operations. That's insane. Uh, yeah, you're really working like a, a night shift to to make that happen, which it even even is more challenging um, to work well, those you, hours. You know what happens is that you still end up working the day too because all of the stuff that you didn't get done, you know, people need you during the day too. So it ended up being, I won't say around the clock, but but pretty close for several months, um, maybe six months doing all of that. So. Yeah, that's it's it's incredible. I want to definitely um, ask anyone who's watching if you have any other questions to definitely submit them. There were a few others that I might get to, but I want to ask if there's anything that we haven't spoken about so far that I might be forgetting to ask about. That's interesting, a story that has to do with Tower of Terror's design or art direction or story um, that or engineering for that matter that those watching or listening to the podcast might find interesting that they haven't read before or that maybe they have read or forgotten. That's something that's really unique or different that uh, is something you, you find fun to, to tell to people about Tower of Terror. Well, I mean, there's, <clears throat> pardon me, there's so many unique things about, about Tower of Terror, and I could, I could get into crazy details about, you know, custom handmade tiles on the floor in, in the lobby. I could talk about all the different hotels that the original team researched uh, throughout Southern California that, that kind of put together a, um, in a sense, a montage for the, not just the architecture, but for the interior design. Um, the boiler room, you know, that there's a, an immense amount of research that goes into this because we're telling a specific story about a specific place and a specific time period that actually existed. So if, if you know, the original team just created whatever, it, it wouldn't have felt real. And the most authentic um, moment for guests in an experience is, is when it feels real when it feels like it's actually happening. Um, I think that's pretty, that's pretty amazing to me. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to mention was uh, there's a difference in um, a scene that's different in the Paris Tower than the Orlando Tower, and it is a, a, uh, another corridor scene where the vehicle comes into place and everybody in the cab is looking in a mirror. I'm sure you're familiar with this. This doesn't exist in Orlando. And um, I think it's really fun. The way that's pulled off is um, now is kind of old technology, but it was really cool. It was done with a, uh, a two-way mirror and a thermal uh, camera. So the thermal camera sees all of the uh, human forms in the cab and then applies a video um, uh, overlay composition on top of what is um, what the thermal camera sees. And then what happens is, uh, literally as we're all in the cab waving, you the, what we see is ourselves turn to ghosts and then we kind of just evaporate in thin air. And it's such an effective uh, scene, um, but it's done with readily available kind of technology. And I think that's what makes things so magical, like a Pepper's ghost, right? That's Right. You know, really old magician's kind of trick. and uh, But it's so incredibly effective 
And, you know, it's hard to surprise guests today. They're very sophisticated, very informed. They know how almost everything is done. So creating true wonder and true joy is, is sometimes really difficult. Yeah, that's so true. I do love that effect. Uh, I've seen, I haven't seen it in person. I've seen so many videos of it, though, and it's always interesting to see. And um, I know that it's a, it's a fun effect. Um, it, it's an incredible how there are so many old effects that continue to stay alive at Disney because they are so effective, despite their age. They're just, especially the Pepper's Ghost effect. I think is, you know, even beyond Disney, it's used in so many places to do so many things, and it's just such an uh, effective piece of uh, of tech. Not, I shouldn't even say technology. It's an effective illusion. Um, that's employed sort of like a magician's trick um, well the architecture i was just going to add one more yeah, yeah. thing matt is the architecture itself there there was a real um a real trick because if you look at tower you know it's sort of like a t in a sense it goes up and then there's these two sort of ears that stick out and yeah um uh, there that became a a, a pretty big challenge for the team because <clears throat> what you always want to do is forced perspective where a building looks like it's higher than it is where the base is a bit wider and the top is a bit thinner and due to the ride system and just the way that it was laid out you ended up with those two um sections on the top of the building so a lot of the architectural uh was actual a lot of the architecture was actual facades to help the base of the building seem bigger than it was and then the tower portion actually has a slight uh, cant in the walls that go up. So, and even the way the building was turned, and anybody who's proficient at uh, Instagram photos knows that you never take a blunt uh, photo, <laughs> right? You always turn right. to the side and you cross your legs, right? Because it makes you uh, leaner and slimmer. Well, that's what Tower of Terror is doing. It's literally turning its primary view to you. So that it doesn't look like these, you know, gigantic ears sticking out. It's kind of <laughs> sideways. And so there was a lot of theater tricks, scenery tricks that were done with just the architecture to um, to really take some of the parts that we couldn't change about the building and place them in the best possible light. Um, even views from the queue are blocked by trees and we maintain certain windows uh, through the landscape so that you can peekaboo and see these things, but other things are hidden from view. Those those uh, tricks, if you will, are employed in almost every attraction that we've ever built anywhere in the world. And uh, uh, because you're, you're, you begin telling the story at the very beginning of Sunset Boulevard, for example. That's fascinating. I have always noticed that angle, but never really thought too much about it. And that's such a brilliant trick. And um, I, I think it makes you right. Like you never really look at a lot of buildings at, uh, well, you, if you did look at Tower of Terror straight on, which I think you can see from the Rock and Roller Coaster Courtyard, um, but not still, you can't see the, you can't really see the bottom because of all the trees and it is built up a little bit. Um, but it is definitely a different angle than when you have that gorgeous shot down Sunset Boulevard and it is angled that way. Um but even if this were like a real street in Hollywood, that probably wouldn't even happen. You would it would either be approaching it head on or at a 90 degree angle, which would totally change the approach. Um, but it's also interesting looking at Tower of Terror from the phantasmic point of view, because right. you have, at least in Orlando, because you have the four shafts in the back and the two shafts in the front. So you get this really like it's it's a lot wider in the back yeah. than it is in the front. I feel like really that's steps up. 
yeah, and that's kind of also hidden pretty well by that angle um, going down sunset because you, you could still see the back. But if you were if you were looking at it head on from that angle, from that distance, you would see skinny tower in the front, wide, short tower in the back, which wouldn't, I guess, make for the best Instagram photos, to your point. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, attractions or, or any element that you see in any park for, for any company in the world Anything that's seen 360 degrees around is a real big challenge because you have to think of it, um, not just the function of what goes on inside of it. Most things of that size and scale, you're not going to build empty. You're going to put a restaurant or an attraction or something in. So the building itself has to fit that function, but then it has to work in the park and it has to work from from every view. And it, it becomes a pretty big challenge. That's where pre-visualization makes a huge difference because you can... You can get in the 3D model and you can walk all the way around it and really tweak all those uh, POVs. Um, yeah, and speaking of 360, I mean, this really has taken the concept to the next level. One of my favorite fun facts about, especially the Orlando Tower of Terror, um, M1894 called out, which is the that the Orlando Tower is visible from the Morocco Pavilion or is visible from Epcot. And in building Tower of Terror, um, you know, the decision was made to blend that architecture into the Morocco Pavilion, which also happened to coincide with some of the architecture in Hollywood. So it was it's during that time period in particular. So it was just, I almost feel like it was meant to be like it, imagine if it was behind the visible behind the American adventure pavilion or the Japan pavilion, they wouldn't have been able to really pull off that effect quite as effectively as being behind the Morocco pavilion. So that's another one of my, my favorite fun facts about tower. Such a great point that, uh, that your audience member picked out. Um, that is absolutely hundred percent true. A lot of the coloring, um, uh, that went into the decisions on the, the, that sort of light mauvish kind of color. Um, and then the spires that you see on the roofs and everything, all of that played into the fact that you could see it from Epcot. And uh, great point. I'm glad you picked it up. <laughs> so it's such a such a, a great little detail taken all the way to a whole different park. Um, you're not you're not paying to go to see Tower of Terror that day, but you still will uh, see Tower of Terror in the distance, and it'll be blended into the Epcot uh, World Showcase architecture, which is so cool. Um, so I guess sort of rounding things out. Um, you know, I'll ask one final question about Tower of Terror for now, and then um, you know, definitely want to to give listeners a chance to to follow you or th- and ask you about where they can go to follow you. But um, to start with my Tower of Terror question, we talked a lot about Tower of Terror. What is your favorite aspect, detail, or part of Tower of Terror? Um, something that we have spoken about, or something that we we haven't spoken about yet? Well, I love the fact that when we mixed up. Uh, we, we offered a new kind of a, a, a feel for Tower when we did Tower 4. One of my favorite things of all was doing the research for that. I think maybe you and I talked about this because we rode that attraction. I can't, I don't remember how many times. We just rode it so much during the day with guests. You know, obviously, Imagineers can't wear your badges in the park, so nobody knew who we were. And the research that we were doing is we were really listening to guests and what I remember hearing was, you know, you would ride in the lift shaft and then you'd be going through the fifth dimension. And just as we started to get to the doors that open, you, you had the big ray of light that splits and kind of opens. Um, you would hear people, you'd hear guests say, OK, here it comes. Brace yourself. Get ready. We're going to drop, you know. 
And it gave me the idea that it would be so cool to go up uh, with one of the new drop sequence drop sequences. And um, I just love the fact that that because we don't have that opportunity very frequently when we're <laughs> when we're when we're building an attraction. You know, it's usually kind of it's going to perform this way and it's going to always perform this way. So being able to go back in and to reverse engineer what the guest's expectation is after an attraction has been open for years and then ride it again with them when it goes up in here their absolute shock and excitement and thrill and uh, when they got off they're talking to their friends and i can't believe it did you you know (laughs) did you do this and no my my one went down yours went up let's go cue again and do it again Uh, that i love that's the my i think my most favorite part of telling those stories is doing it in a way that guests are just blown away. They're just surprised. They're delighted. They, they can't believe how cool it was and they can't wait to come back and do it again. I, that's my favorite. I love that detail too. It's that surprise and delight um, aspect <laughs> of, of Disney. And uh, yeah, like that's totally unexpected. You you would not think on a drop ride going into that, especially if you've done it before. Every, right. You're right. Everybody be telling their friends who haven't done this for the first time, like this is the part where we drop. And no, you go shooting up first before you drop and that throws right. everybody for a surprise. So that's a great, great answer. <laughs> you know that friend's going to get punched in the arm because they said they were going <laughs> to drop and everybody went up. What are you doing to me? <laughs> so true. Um, well, this has been so much fun. Like I love talking about attractions in, in deep detail. And these are things that I ask myself when I'm trying to research attraction episodes and often don't have the answers to. So it's always great to get the chance to sit down and chat with someone who who physically was there, who who worked on the attraction, um, who who knows what what went on behind the scenes. This has been really exciting. Um, for those who are watching on Instagram Live, I am going to probably post this in the fall when it gets closer to the Halloween season. So that will really you can revisit it then. But it'll also be on IGTV right after this is over, in case you missed the beginning, because some people did uh, miss the beginning. And then those of you listening to the podcast, of course, you're able to go back and play again whenever you want. Um, but before we close it out there, and I want to make sure that people know where to go to follow you because you're always full of so many great stories and your social media content has such great information for not just those looking for great stories like this, but also really informative useful um, information if they're especially creative looking to get into a creative role. Um, so anyway, where can people go to follow you and uh, what do you what else do you have going on that people should know about? Cool. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I really am passionate about educating, inspiring, and guiding the next generation of themed experience designers and builders. Uh, I'm, I'm really passionate about that. At Imagineering, uh, you know, I love to find uh, new professionals and have them work on the team and mentor them and help them. And I really do believe that anything that I learned, whether it's from making a mistake or just a crazy, curious experiment that I tried, if I can help pass that on to the next generation, it uh, gives them uh, a leg up and they, they're going to do even greater things than, than we did. So you can find me on Instagram, of course. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I have a YouTube channel where I post um, quite a lot of videos. I'm actually scheduled to shoot one tomorrow where I go into a lot of um, aspects of themed entertainment design. Um, I have a website. Uh, my company is called The Designers Creative Studio. So that's designerscreativestudio.com. 
And for ten, just for the listeners of this show, I actually created a discount code. So anybody interested in any of my classes, uh, use the discount code, all caps, Imagineer Podcast. And, uh, Easy for enough. The next, <laughs> for the next two weeks, you'll get 50% off uh, my, my courses. So um, I have a course on there that's called How to Work in Themed Entertainment, and that's kind of the full collection of, of uh, what I know about themed entertainment from beginning to end. And um, uh, I've had a, a real great pleasure um, providing that information and talking with people that have taken the course. Um, so where else? Uh, I'm also on Pinterest um, and uh, um, a couple of other places. So check it out. I do try to keep all my content uh, fresh, and um, I have a, a blog on my website called The Create Escape where I write about a lot of different things. And, um, and I really hope to, uh, to see some of you on, uh, enjoying my content, reach out and say hi. That's amazing. Thank you so much for offering that discount, by the way. Um, so for those who are, who are watching on Instagram live, I will, uh, I'll post that onto stories later. I've marked it down so that way I can, uh, so you can, you can remember what it is. Um, but that's, that's, thank you so much for, for offering that. Um, and I will also be sure to share your website and everything else. So people know where to, uh, to go. So anyone who's watching, who wants to know the website, hang out for like 10 minutes on my Instagram page, maybe less if I can. And I will, uh, I'll post it there for you. So you can go straight to that, to that site. Um, but there, as always, this is so great. I, I loved having this conversation in particular. I'm a, a Tower of Terror geek for someone who can't write it. I, I still love and geek out about Tower of Terror. <laughs> me too. And this has been too. so much fun. So um, really appreciate it. And thank you so much for spending time with us and answering all these fun questions about Tower of Terror. My pleasure. I had a blast. I, I, I love it. Now, I, after talking about it, I'm ready to go ride it again. <laughs> <laughs> You're it's close so enough awesome. that you can make that happen. So that's uh, maybe maybe tomorrow when the park's open again. <laughs> totally, totally. It's, that's one of the advantages of being in Orlando, right? I can go to Disney Springs anytime I want. I can go to any of the parks. It's kind of nice. So true. But thanks for having me back, uh, Matt. It's always awesome. Um, I love your audience. They are amazing. Ask Always ask great questions. And if you get any follow-up questions, you know, don't hesitate to shoot it to me and we'll figure out a way to, to answer them and, and, uh, and get it out there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for all of you for submitting questions and for watching. And uh, everybody have a great rest of your evening. See you, everyone. See you. Bye. See you. with that, we close out episode 116 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very special thanks once again to Theron for coming onto the show and chatting about the history of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. I, of course, encourage you to find Theron and follow him on the, online. I've got all the links to those places, including his website and his social media channels in the podcast description of this episode. Of course, I want to turn this conversation over to you and hear what you enjoyed most about this conversation, perhaps a fact or a story that you found to be the most interesting. You can send me your answers and feedback, as always, in many different ways, and perhaps the easiest is on social media. You can find Imagineer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast. 
on Twitter at Imagineer News and our Facebook group, which is called the Imagination, also called the Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community, to talk about this topic and all things Disney with me and with other members of this listener community. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, of course, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartMedia, or any other podcast app. That'll ensure that you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. And if you have a few seconds to leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store, that does so much to help us out. And I want to thank the more than 550 of you who have left us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. I do read each and every review that I get. I often share them out to my Instagram and Facebook stories, and I appreciate those of you who have taken the time to rate and review the show. But the best thing you could do for the show is a very simple thing, and that's to hit that share button, whether you're sharing on social media or if you're just chatting about imagining your podcast with your friends and family or to get out the word to anyone who loves all things Disney, who you might know. That, of course, is probably the best thing you could do for this show. It continues to help this community to grow and helps us to bring even more optimistic, family-friendly, welcoming fans into our Disney community. And if you have any feedback or any ways you would like to recommend that I improve the show or any topics you would like to hear in future episodes, I, of course, encourage you to send me a direct message on social media, or you can send me an email at matt at imagineerpodcast.com. And Matt is spelled with two T's, that's M-A-T-T, at imagineerpodcast.com. If you want to take your love of Imagineer Podcast to the next level, I encourage you to become an Imagination Pass holder, which is part of our Patreon group over at patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. There are many levels of pass holder ship that you can join. You can become a pass holder, uh, again, by going to Patreon and learning what the benefits are. Certain benefits include things like early access to every podcast episode, bonus podcast episodes just for Patreon members, access to a private Facebook community, as well as weekly Disney Plus watch parties, which is one of my favorite things that we do, as well as monthly virtual events, daily Disney content, and so much more. There's lots of bonus content to unlock, and all of it goes to help to support the show, and a portion of all proceeds also goes to support various charities throughout the year. You can learn all about it, about how to become, again, an Imagination Pass holder, by going to patreon.com slash podcast, And I've got a link in the show notes below as well as at imagineerpodcast.com. And thanks to the more than 100 Imagination Pass holders, I sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. I also encourage you to check out our partners. First, take a look at The Kingdom Insider for the latest Disney news. You can follow them over at The Kingdom Insider on your favorite social media channel and at thekingdominsider.com. And the next time you're ready to book a vacation to Walt Disney World or Disneyland, Aulani, Disney Cruise Line, or any other Disney destination, you'll want to look into our travel partner, Academy Travel. They are a diamond earmarked industry, which is the, or agency, I should say, which is the top the level of distinction that Disney bestows upon travel agencies. They've been in the business for a long time, over 25 years, and can help to plan out all the details of your next Disney vacation. The best part is it is at no additional cost to you, which is such a great perk. And they can really help to alleviate the guesswork, especially as so much has changed 
over the last year or two with traveling to Disney. If you haven't been in a while, they can help to answer all those questions and even help to save you a little bit of money because they're aware of all the available discounts that might apply to your vacation. So you'll want to check them out by clicking on the links in the show notes below, or again, head to imagineyourpodcast.com. It's pretty much the one-stop shop for all links. If you click on the travel drop-down, that'll take you to some forms that you can fill out um, depending on your destination, and they will get back to you as soon as possible with a free quote for your next Disney vacation. Last but not least, I want to encourage you, as always, to go after your hopes, your dreams, your goals, whatever they might be. We're getting closer to the end of 2021, so now is the time to think about what you can do going into 2022 to make it the best year of your life so far. Remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone.